Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains descriptions of war, violence, murder, rape, racism, child abuse, genocide, slavery, and human trafficking. The 1960s are synonymous with re-evaluation and readjustment, as well as re-entrenchment. The late 1950s were a time of revelation, Both American lawmakers and the American public were in awe at how deeply organized crime had infiltrated organized labor. Even when these damning relationships with organized crime came to light, the normalization of unions as an integral part of American life was at its zenith. This era promised immense upheaval for America, and its co-opted working-class movement. However, I doubt anyone could have predicted the intense nature of societal conflict in the 60s. The promises of World War II, freedom, self-determination, and democracy, were manifesting themselves in radical social and civil rights movements. The women's movement the 2SL-LGBTQIA plus movement and the Chicano Pride movement were prevalent causes that were now experiencing a surge of support and media traction. Democratic candidates were tentatively garnering support for the first civil rights legislation in decades under Roosevelt and later Truman. The trend continued at a similar pace under Eisenhower, whose administration helped ensure the passage of the first two civil rights bills since 1875. Eisenhower was an anti-racist, but he is most remembered for his foreign policy. It is due to Eisenhower that American troops inserted themselves into the undeclared Korean War. He is additionally responsible for sending the first troops to French Indochina, a.k.a. Vietnam, in the form of quote-unquote military advisors. Millions would die in the Korean conflict, which threatened nuclear annihilation, and Vietnam would prove an even more derisive war, as the conflict would play out every night on American television sets, maligning families who disagreed vehemently over the necessity of American troops in Vietnam. The 15-year-long conflict ended following a complete rout of the South Vietnamese forces and a hasty retreat from the American embassy in Saigon. Prior to the Southeast Asian conflict, America found itself at a different kind of crossroads. The election of 1960 was one of the most hotly contested matchups in American history. 
state senator from Massachusetts named John F. Kennedy went head-to-head with former Vice President Richard M. Nixon. Winning by fewer than 120,000 votes, JFK became the 35th president. Serving as his vice president was Texas Senator Lyndon B. Johnson. JFK was not only the youngest president ever elected, he is to this day the only Catholic to have held the title of commander-in-chief. In the public eye, JFK was the youthful optimist the country needed. In reality, JFK was much more of a pragmatist. During his short presidency, he vastly increased America's military role in Southeast Asia and Latin America. On the home front, the dynamics of American life were being molded into the lifestyle many of us are accustomed to seeing pandered to us today. Middle-aged white people were moving from their former neighborhoods in major cities, seeking space and a place to retire. This trend has not relented. Northern cities, meanwhile, were becoming increasingly bankrupt, as thousands of working people left for industrial jobs, which were spread out south of the Mason-Dixon line. Two Americas were beginning to form, and the result of the decisions made by the government during this period would shape America and the world in drastic ways today. The other great superpower of the era, the Soviet Union, was dealing with its own growing pains. Contrary to popular belief, the post-war Soviet Union and their Eastern European client states experienced meteoric growth in industry throughout the 1950s, not to mention significant strides in education and health care. This growth significantly slowed in the 1960s and 1970s. In countless instances, attempts at self-expression were rebuffed and met with violence. In Hungary, a socialist uprising of young people was crushed by Soviet authorities in 1956. More than a decade later, Czechoslovakian attempts to portray, quote, socialism with a human face, unquote, were undermined once more when Soviet tanks broke the backs of the nascent protest movement. Additionally, in a secret speech made by Nikita Khrushchev, the revelations of many of Stalin's atrocities were fully unveiled to Soviet leadership. This quote-unquote secret speech was anything but, and within months the public was made aware of it. Many diehard Stalinists had to face the reality of what they had condoned and allowed. Ironically, the Soviet Union banned all forms of unions, but the 1980s saw a surge of union activity in Poland. This so-called solidarity movement is as responsible for ending Soviet influence as any anti-communist American policy. The Soviet Union was proving to be unable to keep up with the technological advancements of quote-unquote Western capitalism. Their command system was inefficient and run by the older generations, many of whom had been Stalin's yes-men. As the Soviet Union fell behind industrially and economically, their people remained highly educated through state schooling, and many of them became fed up with their country's authoritarian rule. American unions were at a crossroads as well. Their reputation had been tarnished but not destroyed. 
Millions still supported the labor movement unconditionally. However, this unyielding support began to wane throughout this era. In the late 1950s, Gallup polling claimed over 75% of Americans supported labor unions. But by the mid-1960s, this number had fallen precipitously. The same polling agency claimed only 50% of Americans had, quote, a positive feeling about labor unions, unquote. The list of reasons for this nosedive is long and varied. Anti-union laws such as Taft-Hartley and, to a lesser extent, Landrum-Griffin, were seriously deteriorating union rights. Due to Taft-Hartley's language, foremen and other supervisory roles were excluded from labor law coverage. This left thousands of middle management employees on the outside looking in when it came to union rights, pushing them to the employer's side. In 1965, America had created over 22 million quote-unquote white-collar jobs, of which only 10 million were given admission into unions. At the same time, blue-collar jobs were being whittled away by a combination of corrupt and complacent union officials and the never-ending creep of automation. Technology showed no signs of relenting, and Philip Dre says it, quote, made the craft tradition virtually obsolete, unquote. This battle against technology was nothing new to American workers. One popular American folklore legend is John Henry. This worker supposedly challenged a steam engine to a steel-driving match. At the end of the race, John Henry was victorious, but in the effort, quote, he died with his hammer in his hand, unquote. The unnamed steam engine continued to drive steel regardless of Henry's futile sacrifice. Across the country, American workers were being chewed up and spit out by the uncaring machine that is modern international capitalism, just like John Henry. In modern industry, like in car manufacturing, turnover was rampant. Accidents and death on the job were met with indifference, while other jobs were being phased out altogether. In the railroad industry, 32,000 employees who used to be firemen were now essentially obsolete due to the advent of new types of automation. Trains supposedly no longer needed a worker in the engine room to ensure the engine was operating safely. Employers accused these tens of thousands of, quote, feather bedding, unquote. Philip Dre says feather bedding was, quote, the maintaining of a union-protected job that was unnecessary and required little or no effort, unquote. Their union, the Firemen's Brotherhood, argued their role was essential to ensure safety. In the decades prior to this, the trend of using longer trains had begun. This increased safety issues, but also company profits. Congress was called on to adjudicate the dispute between firemen and the railroad companies. They decided 90% of the firemen would be, quote, phased out, unquote. After the Supreme Court reaffirmed Congress's decision, the union threatened a mass walkout. The newly enshrined President Johnson had to step in to personally demand the union get back to work. 
In exchange for their acquiescence, Johnson promised improved conditions. Following upon the same trend, linotype operators were phased out of the newspaper industry. Beyond the rise of automation, technology, and private power, trade unions faced a period of stagnant activity. Work actions reached a low that mirrored the no-strike pledge days of World War II. When strikes happened, they were for things like improved safety conditions or for retraining programs. There was no more striking simply to exist. Employers dealt with unions as a necessary annoyance. The federal government was also much more active in presenting laws that might alleviate workers' woes. Starting with Roosevelt, the government actively attempted to solve the problems of working people. They allocated $35 million to assist those who were left by the wayside because of technological advancements. This money allowed them to train to work in a new position. During Johnson's presidency, he instituted the Great Society. This presidential program was an active attempt to destroy poverty across America. It mirrored the New Deal as well as earlier reform programs. What made the Great Society special was that it was one of the first active attempts to address the increasing gap between rich and poor. A variety of reformist voices throughout the country pushed this same plan. One of the loudest of these voices was Michael Harrington. His book, The Other America, portrays urban poverty in a way that was harrowing to a nation which claimed to be the greatest on earth. In response to loud protests, things like the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, the Fair Housing Act, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 were passed. These acts sought to empower individuals through education, job training, and community programs. Latine farm workers in California found untold success in organizing the mostly migratory Latine, Filipino, and southern white farm workers who toiled under the hot California sun. They were led by Cesar Chavez. The countless farm workers and pickers he represented were conveniently excluded from New Deal collective bargaining agreements. Their pay was below starvation levels. Their work remained unregulated and even child labor was unchecked. These were the quote-unquote others, destined to deal with bugs and gnats in the stagnant air, working to pick the grapes, which were turned into wine for the upper classes. These working conditions were aptly described as, quote, factories in the fields, unquote. All attempts at organizing were crushed. The migratory nature of work meant that employers could draw on interracial prejudices and a steady stream of new, cheap labor from across the planet. Philip Dre aptly writes, quote, The results were insular serfdom, a civic culture with no parallel in the United States outside the plantation south or the Colorado coal fields of the early 1900s, unquote. Overt racism was used to justify low wages and despicable treatment. An early so-called historian of the region wrote, quote, You couldn't pay them a decent wage, for they would drink it up right away. As far as providing them with a shelter or a bed, why, 
They love the open air and would rather die than take a bath. Unquote. It was an ingrained racism which had spread throughout California since the state was acquired by America. This hatred only became worse due to the two Red Scares, IWW labor agitation in the area, and the left-wing terrorist bombing of the L.A. Times building. This insular serfdom remained unrecognized until the early 1930s, when Francis Perkins first attempted to investigate conditions in California farming. This first stirring saw intense reactionary violence from employers. When a strike was attempted, vigilantes kidnapped and tortured strikers. In response, authorities arrested several of the strike leaders for quote-unquote violence. World War II was a period of crisis in California farms. Thousands of hitherto productive and loyal Japanese workers were interned unjustly by the American government, dilapidating the farming industry in California during a crucial moment in the war. In 1942, America and Mexico agreed to an informal business arrangement. Thousands of Mexican citizens would be given informal guest worker entry to the United States. Restrictions put in place to check these migrant laborers were often ignored by all parties involved. Likewise, the pay scale was disregarded. Complaints from the laborers led a fed-up employer class to import their labor illegally. This trend continued at an unchecked pace for over a decade until 1954. In that year, President Eisenhower instituted what he horrifically named, quote, Operation Wetback, unquote, which was described by his administration as a, quote, military effort to locate undocumented Mexicans for deportation, unquote. The Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, or AWOC, was on the side of the pickers, calling the growers' treatment of the workers and, quote, approximate of slave labor conditions, unquote. In 1964, the Braquero work program was officially nixed. In the great debate over immigration, the role of the employer is never brought up. Perhaps the best way to mitigate undocumented immigration is to harshly punish employers who hire immigrants illegally, instead of punishing and deporting these poor people. Enter Cesar Chavez, born in Arizona in 1927. His family lost their land when the Depression struck, and they drifted west to California. They worked a, quote, seasonal loop, unquote, following the blooming crops year-round, like modern-day nomads. The family settled permanently in a section of San Jose known as Sal Si Puedes, which means leave if you can. When his father was injured in the fields, Cesar did all he could to support his family. Toward the end of World War II, he joined the Navy. After the war, Chavez and his wife, Linda, settled in Delano, California. It was here he was first introduced to the labor movement through a local advocate who defended Mexican prisoners who were badly beaten by drunk LAPD officers. The case, known as Bloody Christmas, 
ended in indictments for many LAPD police officers. Teaming up with Dolores, a.k.a. Lola Huerta, he founded the National Farm Workers Association, or NFWA. In September of 1965, a Filipino local walked out on Delano's grape growers. They demanded a meager wage increase of only 15 cents an hour, but the growers refused their requests. This walkout grew to over 5,000 pickers and migrant workers. The local union merged with NFWA, and the two formed the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee, or UFWOC. This strike proved the first of many challenges to Cesar Chavez and his burgeoning workers' movement, but he was ready to fight. Chavez spoke plainly, which was a revelation to the entire state, and he had two major advantages on his side. Grapes require specific harvesting times, so a well-timed work action could wreck grower profits for the whole season. Additionally, grape harvesting requires semi-skilled workers. They were less replaceable than your standard farmhand. Since it was illegal to use outright violence against the picketers, the growers went about making their workers' lives hell on the picket line. They used tractors to kick up dust onto the strikers, and on one occasion, they used a small biplane to, quote, crop dust, unquote, those on the line. The courts were also on the side of the growers, issuing insane injunctions on Chavez and his union. One injunction forbade protesters from using the word huelga, which means strike in Spanish. Chavez had one final trump card to play. He believed entirely in nonviolence and demanded nonviolence to be the rule, even in the face of state or grower violence. He understood clearly that no matter how justified, violence involving his union would be used to paint the whole of the organization in broad strokes. In almost all circumstances, the striking workers of California were nonviolent, even when met by vigilante and grower-hired thugs. Chavez enjoyed equal support from radical students and the Catholic clergy alike, allowing him to turn the burgeoning labor rights movement for migrant workers into a larger civil rights movement for all migrants. Standing beside California's farmers were Walter Ruther and Robert Kennedy, proving that the workers enjoyed national support from serious political and labor leaders. In spite of this support, the growers refused to budge and continuously referred to Chavez as, quote, that dumb Mex, unquote. The long-standing alliance between the Democratic Party and the labor movement was on somewhat shaky ground as this period began. People were unsure where JFK stood, but under his new frontier, he promised vast increases toward unemployment and family benefits. This came at a time when the economy was truly sputtering. There were two large recessions in JFK's three-year presidency. Through his policies, the country bounced back, and following his assassination, an unprecedented outpouring of grief was publicly and privately shown. The AFL-CIO, still under the control of the conservative George Meany, 
through their support behind President Johnson and his supposed Great Society programs. Lyndon B. Johnson recognized labor's power and appointed Hubert Humphrey as his vice president. Humphrey is described by Philip Dre as the statesman with, quote, the most stellar pro-labor voting record in Congress, unquote. As Johnson escalated the war in Vietnam after the falsified Gulf of Tonkin incident, traditional labor unions rallied to support the undeclared war. The conflict created millions of defense contract jobs on the Pacific coast, and businessmen quickly took advantage of the so-called Vietnam run. Philip Foner says that for organized labor, quote, the war was far away and jobs were a reality, unquote. Both Walter Ruther and George Meany supported the war. The latter advocated vociferously for the president and would later use his influence to crush dissenting opinions. At first, criticism of the war was muted, especially in trade and labor unions. On February 24th, however, 1965, local 1199 of the Drug and Hospital Employees Union urged an end to the, quote, war no one can win, unquote. Several unions joined the brave local. Emil Maisie, secretary-treasurer of the UAW, was the most high-ranking anti-war labor advocate. He says, quote, We were lied to by Ike on the U-2 spy plane over the Soviet Union, lied to by the Kennedy administration on the Bay of Pigs, and now LBJ says that we are in Vietnam to defend democracy, unquote. The main anti-war voices, however, came from the youngest generations. Vocal college students became advocates for change in a largely peaceful way. Some, however, turned to violent radicalism. The most clear example is that of the Weather Underground Organization. The group, a far-left Marxist organization, was named for a Bob Dylan lyric, quote, You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, unquote. The weathermen were largely responsible for the Days of Rage, a series of violent protests in Chicago in 1969. These weathermen were a violent faction of the largely nonviolent student organization Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. The SDS would lead one of many marches on Washington, which took place during this time. By the end of 1965, the calls for an end to the fighting were growing louder. Following the Battle of Iadrang Valley, in which half of the defending American forces were casualties, more unions followed Local 1199's steadfast example. Meany remained incandescent when confronted with anti-war protesters. He called them, quote, academic do-gooders, unquote, and, quote, apostles of appeasement, unquote. A clear split in the labor movement was forming. Young activists stopped equating unions with reforms, and they were right. Overall, the labor movement's leadership mirrored the leadership of the country, old, white, out of touch, and complacent as long as whatever was happening served them. Civil rights had been pushed for centuries, but only recently was civil rights legislation seriously considered by either party. 
1963 was an immensely important year in the struggle for civil rights. Organized by A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was an era-defining event. 300,000 people marched for equal rights, featuring speeches by Walter Ruther and performances by Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. The event closed with the oft-quoted Martin Luther King Jr. speech, I Have a Dream. This mass protest helped bring about the passage of several Johnson-era civil rights bills. Back in California, 150 farmhands and fruit pickers began a march alongside Cesar Chavez. He promised to walk 300 miles to the state capitol in Sacramento. It was a quasi-religious event, as a statue of the Lady of Guadalupe was held aloft by marchers. American and Mexican flags flew side by side as the marchers began their arduous journey. The marchers also carried their insignia, the Thunderbird, a mythological creature which pops up often in indigenous North American folklore. Conservatives began their reactionary campaign with time-honored criticisms. One pamphlet called the marchers, quote, long-haired kooks, professional loafers, winos, and dregs of society, unquote. In spite of these unfounded accusations, Chavez and his marchers gained steam, winding north through the San Joaquin Valley. At each stop, the marchers' declaration was read aloud. It stated, quote, Our sweat and our blood have fallen on this land to make other men rich. We are poor, we are humble, and our only choice is to strike. We want to be equal with all working men in the nation. We shall overcome, unquote. They arrived in Sacramento on Easter Sunday, 1966. Along the way, Chavez had to leave the march and ride in a car as he could no longer walk. Gaining and losing marchers along the way, all that remained of the 150 originales were 57 diehards who had marched 300 miles to improve their lot and the lot of their neighbors. These originales were hoisted on the shoulders of the marchers, and the celebrations were raucous. Before the march concluded, the first major grower had capitulated to the Union's demands. Following this capitulation, the Union and Chavez turned to Di Giorgio, a corporation which controlled thousands of acres of farmland and the livelihoods of thousands of migrants. Chavez understood clearly the power a corporation like Di Giorgio had due to their employment of undocumented labor. In a highly controversial move, Chavez urged these many undocumented migrants to return to Mexico. He felt this was the only way to truly impede the corporation's power and their cheap labor pool. Chavez was not prepared for the Teamsters. They had sided with the fruit workers during their historic march and early victory, but against Di Giorgio, they maneuvered themselves to be the union which gained bargaining power with the company. Chavez felt rightfully betrayed. He called the Teamsters, quote, those bastards, unquote. This underhanded tactic was used by a rival of Jimmy Hoffa's, in order to gain more influence in the corruption-ridden union. In the end, Di Giorgio called for a union election, which the Teamsters won. 
Governor Jerry Brown was conspicuously absent from Sacramento during the historic Easter Day arrival of Chavez's marchers. But he recognized that he needed to pick a side in the labor battle being waged in his state. Brown demanded a state inquiry into the union quote-unquote election at DiGiorgio. It returned with evidence of improprieties, and he deemed that this justified a new election. The AFL-CIO was already supporting the fruit workers from the sidelines, but they would not give an official charter to Chavez's union until it merged with a similar union. The end result was another name change and the birth of the United Farm Workers of California, or UFW. It was an unprecedented step toward full representation for all working peoples. Congress followed suit, amending the Fair Labor Standards Act to include farm workers. The AFL-CIO's support of the farm workers had much more to do with their animosity toward the ostracized Teamsters Union than wholehearted support for the farm workers in general. For their part, the Teamsters resorted to incredible lows when attacking the migrant laborers. During this point in history, the Teamsters were solidly on the side of the Republican Party and were one of the few unions to openly support Richard Nixon and then Ronald Reagan for their respective presidential campaigns. Deciding to end the fratricidal dispute, the Teamsters and the UFW agreed to set boundaries. The former would represent workers in canneries, processing facilities, and warehouses, while the latter would control the fields. Following this uneasy peace, UFW turned its attention toward a nationwide grape boycott. This boycott proved not only effective, but popular. Grapes are not a necessity in the pantry, so shaming consumers into not purchasing them was easy. By 1970, 85% of the nation's grape growers had agreed to binding union shop contracts with the UFW. At a time when the labor movement was clinging to its victories of bygone days, Chavez and the UFW proved unions could still have broad appeal and bring true change and reform to shoddily run industries. The success of the UFW was in part thanks to Walter Ruther, who Philip Dre says was, quote, considered the conscience of the labor movement, unquote. He at first supported the conflict in Vietnam. He despised communism and believed the president when he said that the only way to stop communism spread was to nip it in the bud then and there. This false notion is referred to as domino theory. Communism did spread in Southeast Asia, but it probably had more to do with American troops destabilizing the entire region. An invading army killed millions of civilians and then said, quote, communism is bad, unquote. Is it really any wonder why these same people who were massacred and displaced by God-complex imperialists chose to identify with communism and its anti-imperialist notions. This same conflict was ripping Ruther apart ideologically. By the mid-1960s, he was openly questioning the war effort and calling for peace talks with the belligerents. His boss, Meany, would not hear a word of it. 
he actively supported CIA efforts to co-opt the labor movement in South Vietnam. They propped up the Conservative Confederation of Vietnamese Labor and gave vast sums of money to the creation of the Asian American Free Labor Institute. This situation destroyed American labor's image in the minds of millions of student activists. In their minds, organized labor was just another front by the government to exploit poor people. The sad truth is that they were largely correct. Every reformist movement inevitably gets infiltrated with people who seek power and only want to serve their personal interests. Following the 1966 midterm elections, the Great Society took a back seat to expanding the war effort in Vietnam. Meany reaffirmed his support, promising to back the president until the war was won. In 1967, he made his feelings abundantly clear. He said his support for the war, quote, spoke for the vast, silent majority in the nation, unquote. This was the first recorded utterance of the phrase silent majority, Conservatives liked it so much that Richard Nixon would use it as one of his catchphrases for his 1968 presidential campaign. The country appeared to be breaking down. In the cities, race riots took hold with stunning violence. In 1964, New York City was gripped with racial violence in Bedford-Stuyvesant and Harlem. In 1965, the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles cascaded into turmoil. Similar scenes played out in Cleveland, Chicago, and Newark, New Jersey throughout 1966 and 1967. In 1967, Detroit was home to some of the worst scenes of violence. 36 people died, while another 2,500 were arrested. This racial tension was enhanced by generational and labor tension. Longshoremen marched hand-in-hand hand with the John Birch Society and American Legionaries. A generation previous, these factions would have been at violent odds with one another. But they came together to, quote, support the boys, unquote, in Vietnam. They chanted, quote, burn Hanoi, not our flag, unquote. While George Meany lost more of what Philip Dre called his, quote, tether to reality, unquote. He claimed that a pro-peace rally in Chicago was the work of Vietnamese insurgents and that the march was orchestrated from Hanoi. The youth were increasingly losing their patience with all organized institutions, whether they were labor unions or the government. They demanded change and, if necessary, they would attempt to force it through. The Weathermen were only one of several extremist militant factions of the era, the Nation of Islam, led by the brilliant orator Malcolm X, was gaining a huge following alongside the first stirrings of the American Indian Movement, or AIM. Previous attempts at peaceful protesting were met by Ku Klux Klan members butchering protesters in the dead of night. The Democratic Party, for all the work it had done toward desegregation, still had much to do. They actively sided with bigots and segregationists, when confronted with protestations from reformers. Martin Luther King Jr. refused to let violence cloud his mission. He completely supported nonviolence as a strategy. However, toward the second half of the 60s, Dr. King's rhetoric was becoming more and more radical. As the war in Vietnam dragged on, 
he became more vocal in his opposition, as well as his espousing of socialist views. Operation Breadbasket illustrated this clearly. Launched fully in 1966, it was an attempt to address the serious economic imbalances the black community faced in major cities. He said, quote, As long as people are devoid of jobs, they will find themselves in moments of despair that could lead to a continuation of these disorders, unquote. Following some mediocre gains, Breadbasket evolved into a, quote, poor people's campaign, unquote, in 1968. This frightened many of the moderate white liberals who supported him. In spite of these moderate misgivings, King made his opinion clear. He compared the napalm bombing of Vietnamese children to Nazi war crimes in World War II. He said the United States of America was, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, unquote. Finally, and most poignantly, he said, quote, if America's soul becomes poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam, unquote. People were shocked at King's words. How could he compare America with Nazi Germany? America was preserving democracy and capitalism throughout the world, right? King's Poor People campaign gained legitimacy through a government report. The Kerner Commission released its findings in early spring of 1968. It blamed recent racial violence throughout the country on mass immigration of black people into northern urban centers with a concurrent departure of white citizens. The report concluded that the riots of the past several years were spontaneous outbursts of violence which related to these factors. The commission suggested several remedies, including the creation of two million federal jobs, better and more affordable housing, special police training, and a substantial increase in federal funding for state welfare programs. They ominously finished the report by saying America was, quote, moving toward two societies, one white, one black, separate but unequal, unquote. The government felt the commission's suggestions were too much, too fast. They felt they had already passed several extensive civil rights bills, and more reform would simply muddy the waters. Johnson felt his house of cards being blown out from under him. The news from Vietnam was not bad, but it wasn't good. Americans were dying every single day in the jungle thousands of miles from their home. In January 1968, the Tet Offensive exploded all across South Vietnam. Mostly Viet Cong units pushed all positions at the cost of thousands of their own soldiers. It was a shocking but mostly ineffective offensive. The propaganda value, however, was incredible. The Dump Johnson movement, founded by an eccentric New York Democrat, was gaining traction behind Eugene McCarthy. At the final tally of the New Hampshire primary, the incumbent Johnson won by only seven points. On the heels of this news, Robert F. Kennedy announced his candidacy for president. He was seemingly a shoo-in. Labor unions stuck to the tried-and-true Johnson, who promised continued social reforms for workers 
once the North Vietnamese and their Viet Cong allies were destroyed. On March 31st, Johnson declined to pursue a second term. The Democratic Party was spiraling. At the same time, Dr. King was in Memphis, called there by an embittered strike, led by Local 1733 of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. They had staged a wildcat or impromptu strike in support of necessary reforms for their essential jobs. Race was a huge issue for the strike, as all but five of the union's 300 members were black. The mayor justified the employee's dollar-and-change hourly wage to Walter Ruther by making the erroneous statement that, quote, it takes five years to learn how to empty a garbage can, unquote. Since this strike involved public employees, sides quickly became politicized. Opening the Pandora's box of racist sentiment, which had long simmered in Memphis. The mayor authorized scabs to be hired to run the garbage trucks. The union strikers openly defied court injunction to their work action, walking down Main Street carrying placards which bore the words, quote, I am a man, unquote. The community rushed to their striking garbage men's aid, launching an impromptu boycott of white businesses. Arrests began immediately. Several teenagers were maced for, quote, pounding their fists on a passing squad car, unquote. The fight for working rights and civil rights had collided in Memphis, and more violence was coming. On Thursday, March 28th, King scheduled his first march in Memphis. It rapidly devolved into a riot when a teenage group of activists who called themselves the Invaders rejected King's nonviolence. In the ensuing riot, King had to be hustled away in a car while the protesters fought hand-to-hand with police. In the aftermath, a black teenager, Larry Payne, lay dead, shot by police after he allegedly rushed officers with a butcher's knife. Another 50 people needed medical attention, while 100 were arrested for their roles in the riot. The mayor called in the militia the moment a window was broken, and they came prepared to face off with, quote, black snipers, unquote, who were falsely reported to be at the scene. King was singled out for criticism, and I believe it's fair to say King did not fully grasp that the situation had already devolved before he even arrived. However, King was determined to stay and fight, and he felt this strike represented clearly the intertwined issues of race and economics. King reached out to the teenage invaders, who pledged to refrain from future violence. Following a sweeping court injunction against a future march, the April 5th demonstration was rescheduled for April 8th. The night of April 3rd, Memphis was washed out with rain. Regardless, King was determined to speak to a group of people at a local church gathering. He took the pulpit and said, Well, I don't know what will happen now, but it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, 
I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Unquote. The next day, while standing on the second-story balcony of the Memphis Motel, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. The bullet pierced his face, shattered his jaw, and lodged itself in his right shoulder. Following a failed emergency surgery, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was dead. To this day, people argue whether Dr. King's murderer was actually caught. In a 1997 civil trial, a jury concluded that Dr. King was killed in a vast conspiracy, which involved, among other things, government agencies of an unspecific name. This view is upheld by close relatives of Dr. King, as well as Mark Lane, who was a lawyer for alleged shooter James Earl Ray. The violence triggered by Dr. King's death swept the nation. A good portion of the country's major urban centers were burned out wrecks. Forty-three people would be killed. More than 3,000 would be wounded. And over 12,000 would be arrested across the country. American society was experiencing a period of incomparable civil violence. It seemed the very fabric of society was tearing this new dichotomy was represented in the Ruther Meany relationship. Ruther was an idealist raised on American labor's mythic past. Meany was a pragmatist and a conservative. Ruther donated tens of thousands of dollars to the civil rights movement and put out feelers to global unions in the hopes of showing international solidarity. It was another clear delineation from Meany's ideology. Divisions were appearing in America's largest union once more. In early 1968, following several arguments, Ruther began withholding the UAW's dues from the AFL-CIO. On July 1, 1968, the UAW officially split from the country's largest union. Throughout the rest of the country, violence continued at a steady pace. In early June, Robert Kennedy was killed in Los Angeles after being declared winner of the state primary. In Chicago, the Democratic Convention devolved into a police riot when anti-war protesters dared to defy a court order. Hundreds were beaten while protesters chanted, quote, The whole world is watching, unquote. The Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, looked feeble in the face of aggressive police tactics. It boded poor tidings for the future. Richard Nixon was prepared to capitalize on this. He promised to be tough on crime, lax on taxes, and bring, quote, peace with honor, unquote, to the conflict in Vietnam. Once in office, 
Nixon escalated the war. He began a ruthless invasion of Cambodia and reinitiated the bombings of North Vietnamese cities. In March of 1968, the atrocities committed by American soldiers and officers in Vietnam were made abundantly clear. A brigade of U.S. infantry stormed into Sung Mai village and its adjoining hamlets. By the time they were done, more than 500 Vietnamese men, women, and children lay dead, their bodies tossed in unceremonious piles or left on the road in which they were shot. Girls as young as 10 were raped and assaulted. One woman was raped after American soldiers shot her children in front of her. Yet not a single American serviceman was charged with rape or sexual assault afterwards. It took an incensed helicopter pilot reporting the incident to higher-ups to stop the killings. The My Lai Massacre became the rallying cry of the anti-war movement and a turning point in American history. Tony Mazzocchi, a leader in the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers, or OCAW, was one of the most vocal anti-war advocates in the labor movement. He believed Vietnam was a poor man's war, fought by the poor against the poor to keep the poor ensnared in poverty. For one of the first times ever, businessmen and union officials marched together to bring an end to the war. On May 4th, Ohio National Guardsmen opened fire on anti-war protesters after they hurled rocks at the guards' position. Four college students were killed while another 11 were seriously wounded. Walter Ruther began actively criticizing the new president's war effort, saying, quote, It is your responsibility to lead us out of the Southeast Asian War, unquote. This would be Ruther's last public appearance. On May 9th, he and his wife May, along with four others, would lose their lives in a plane crash. Upon investigation, parts of the plane's altimeter were missing, while other parts were placed upside down, leading some to suspect foul play. Eulogizing him, Coretta Scott King says, quote, If his ways were simple, his ideas were grand. He aroused the imagination of millions. He was fighting the fight of the whole world. Unquote. American labor had lost its heart and soul in Ruther, and it began to devolve. One of the worst reactionary attacks was that of the workers, who were fighting against college students protesting the war. Students from New York University had been peacefully protesting all of May 8th. Construction workers from the nearby World Trade Center site wandered into their protests. They were enraged. They felt these hippies had no place criticizing the president and denigrating the armed forces. The construction workers forced their way to the center of the protest, using their yellow helmets as bludgeons. They shouted, quote, Love it or leave it, unquote, and, quote, Kill the commie bastards, unquote, as they chased teenagers through the city's financial district and waylaid them. The construction workers moved as a unit toward City Hall, where they planned on demanding the half-staff American flag be fully drawn. The flag was in this position to honor those killed at Kent State, which was deemed another affront by the construction workers. They had serious grievances, both real and imagined, with New York City Mayor John Lindsay 
When Lindsay began his mayorship over the five boroughs, he was greeted with a massive work action started by the Transport Workers Union. It paralyzed the entire city over the two weeks it lasted. The leader of the TWU was Mike Quill, an Irish immigrant and former communist. Quill had a less-than-enthusiastic opinion of Lindsay as mayor. He said, quote, You are nothing but a juvenile, a lightweight, and a pipsqueak. You have to grow up. You don't know anything about labor unions, unquote. Philip Dre says, quote, When Quill was served an injunction for violating a state no-strike order governing the transit workers, he tore up the court's paper. Unquote. This whole time, New York City was in a state of free fall. The city lost millions of dollars every day as traditional industries like textiles left in droves for southern states who offered low taxes and little to no union presence. The city was so broke that the city employees were told not to cash their checks or they'd be fired. Eventually, Congress needed to come to the rescue of the fledgling city. Following technological advancements and the repopulating of New York with technologically advanced industry, the city recovered. The TWU strike ended in success for the union, as Lindsay had to agree to increased wages and a, quote, special pension bonus, unquote. Quill, the president of the TWU, died two days later of heart failure. Fueled by racism and Luddite fears, the conservative white population of New York City revolted against what it considered to be the, quote, usurping of the old way, unquote. They blamed politicians and black people for their economic woes. The divide between white industrial workers and New York City's politicians had become publicly and exceedingly apparent. A white New York ironworker stated, quote, Lindsay doesn't care whether my kid has shoes, whether my boy gets a new suit for Easter, whether I got money in the bank. None of them politicians give a good goddamn. All they worry about is the black people, unquote. Following a brutal blizzard in February of 1969, much of the city remained neglected when cleanup efforts eventually began. While in Queens, Lindsay was derided by a woman who called him a, quote, bum, unquote, and told him to, quote, get away, unquote. These same feelings brought about the hard hat assaults of 1970. The hard hats easily overwhelmed the small police detachment assigned to City Hall. And once the flag was erected, they sang the star-spangled banner in full voice. Many dispersed following this, but some descended on the campus of Pace University and continued their tirade against the teenagers there. On May 11th, a much larger crowd of 2,000 flooded Lower Manhattan. They called for Lindsay's impeachment and when in front of Pace U held signs which read, quote, don't worry, they don't draft gay people, unquote. Nixon was quick to support these quote-unquote American heroes, inviting AFL-CIO leadership to the White House for war briefings. The Union, meanwhile, presented Nixon with a hard hat, 
with his surname etched into it. Patterns of violence similar to that of the hard hats are not an anomaly in American history. New York City's 1863 draft riots are a prime example of that, along with the Molly Maguire movement, which took place during the same period in the anthracite region of Pennsylvania. May 20, 1970, saw 100,000 gather in NYC for a pro-war rally, but the next day similar numbers attended an anti-war rally. Thus began the courting of the white working class by Republican elites. In spite of the fact that they largely support right-to-work laws and many other anti-union positions, Republicans enjoyed, and still enjoy, huge support from the white working class. This groundswell of conservatism in the American labor movement helped launch the careers of many conservatives. In California, the former head of the Screen Actors Guild, Ronald Reagan, became governor thanks to this same movement. Nixon continued to court the House of Labor. In 1971, the hard-on-crime Richard Nixon commuted the sentence of Jimmy Hoffa. This helped secure his endorsement from the Teamsters Union, while the AFL-CIO refused to endorse George McGovern and his Democratic candidacy. This affront to McGovern was strange, considering McGovern was one of the most pro-labor congressmen ever, even publishing a well-repudiated pro-labor account of the Ludlow Massacre of 1914. Come the 1972 election, McGovern would lose every single state to Richard Nixon, save for Massachusetts. One positive side effect of the Republican courting of the labor movement was the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, or OSHA. For the first time ever, there would be a federal apparatus for the creation of health and safety standards. In reality, OSHA was the culmination of a long line of environmentally focused legislation. For the first time ever, people began to consciously question corporations and their power to harm the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the planet at large. The early environmental movement can trace its roots back to the first anti-nuclear weapons movement. The questions about radiation's harmful effects over time led to people questioning other man-made substances and gases. Additionally, the 60s bore witness to several studies and exposés about the environment. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring warns of the dangers of DDT pesticides and serves as a template for future inquiries like it. Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed tells of the innate risk of driving automobiles and the many dangers associated with them. These two pieces joined other works of the era, like The Population Bomb, The Frail Ocean, and Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth as essential early environmentalist literature. Even the courts were in on the trend. In Scenic Hudson Preservation Conference vs. Federal Powers Commission, Residents of Cornwall-on-Hudson won the right to challenge Consolidated Edison's ability to construct a massive power plant on the Lower Hudson River. 
The newfound obsession with public health can be dated back as far as the 1920s with the loony gas scare. Scientists raised early concerns about leaded gasoline in millions of cars. Citing countless examples of leaded gasoline workers suffering from neurological problems. In response, gas companies claimed leaded gasoline was a, quote, gift from God, unquote. The fight against the leaded gasoline in mass-produced cars was taken back up by Claire Cameron Patterson. After accurately deducing the Earth's true age, he discovered the amount of lead in the atmosphere was much higher today than a hundred years ago. Alongside researchers like Herbert Needleman, he led the fight to ban leaded gasoline throughout America. The campaign to ban leaded gasoline across the globe has been long and arduous. The last reserves of leaded gasoline did not run out until 2021. Babies and small children are especially susceptible to lead poisoning or intoxication. It can cause permanent damage to one's mental development. Some researchers even postulate the decrease in lead after years of exposure to the metal has seriously reduced crime rates. Health issues among workers especially touch the Department of Labor. Starting with Francis Perkins, the cabinet position played an important role in rooting out unsafe and egregious working conditions. In 1936, Several thousand workers dug out the harrowing Hawk's Nest Tunnel. Nicknamed by the workers the Tunnel of Death, thousands of those who worked on the site were affected by silicosis. Silicosis is a lethal respiratory disease caused by drilling, which leaves a fine silica dust in the air. Foremen waited for the blasted rock then herded workers into the smoke-heavy air with, quote, pick handles, unquote. Nearby were the unmarked graves of those who died suddenly and horrifically. It was reported that, quote, their gravestones were cornstalks waving in the wind, their shrouds the overalls in which they died, unquote. Turning to his mother, one young tunnel worker said, quote, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm a-going to die. I think it's from my work. I want you to have me cut open. If you can get anything from the company, go ahead. Unquote. In response, the Walsh-Healy Act was passed in 1936, but it did little to combat thousands of problems that had stacked up. In textile mills, workers inhaled cotton dust. Those in mines, meanwhile, inhaled coal dust and matchstick workers were working with phosphorus that would eventually eat away at their jaws and cause severe swelling and deformity. Employers would either ignore complaints or hire their own quote-unquote scientists to write cherry-picked articles and quote-unquote scientific reviews. At the Hawk's Nest, 476 workers were deemed to have died because of their egregious working conditions. In a further insult to those who died, 
Black families were offered as little as $80 in federal compensation, while white families received as much as $1,000. Those who survived the tunnel of death were left with no compensation at all. The Divisions of Labor Standards, or DLS, was created to correct future wrongdoings of this nature. By the end of World War II, the DLS had investigated over 20,000 job sites and hastened several reforms in on-site job safety. In 1952, Hubert Humphrey introduced a bill to Congress which would provide safety standards as well as workplace inspectors in federal spaces. Throughout the entire country, only 1,600 state inspectors existed, most of them being federal fish and game wardens. Humphrey's proposal was shot down by the AFL, which still supported state-based regulations. By the end of the 1950s, however, it was revealed the daily toils of longshoremen had improved significantly thanks to standardized safety procedures. In 1965, the Public Health Service recommended a program to reduce on-site work dangers, and the next year President Johnson declared his support for workplace health standards as well. Across the country, there was an outcry from uranium miners in the American Southwest. They were not represented by the Bureau of Mines. Instead, they were directed by the Atomic Energy Commission, which routinely disregarded health concerns. Rallying to the workers' side was the anti-war labor advocate, Tony Mazzocchi. He saw no contradiction at all in being an environmentalist and a unionist. He said, quote, We're making the point that you can't be concerned about the general environment unless you're concerned about the industrial environment. The two are inseparable, unquote. At the beginning of 1968, Johnson called it shameful that over 14,000 Americans were dying each year at work, while another 2 million were injured or sickened. He demanded federal workplace safety legislation. The safety bill, however, never made it through committee. The next year, a new, more conservative bill was working its way through Congress. Philip Dre says the new bill was, quote, of a more advisory and less regulatory role for government, unquote. This campaign is one of the main catalysts for the passing of OSHA, at first, OSHA inspectors slowly worked their way through complaints, but by 1972 they had investigated over 20,000 plants, of which 77% were found to be in violation of safety regulations. The 1970s were a period of unprecedented corruption. In the government, corporations, and labor unions, corruption and violence were the norms. This period of government corruption can only be mirrored in American history by the 1870s. Instead of railroads running the nation, insecure and vainglorious authoritarians attempted to maintain their loose grip on power. During the 1972 presidential election, Richard Nixon stooped to incredible lows to get dirt on his opponent. In June... He had operatives who were loyal to him break into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate complex. 
These operatives succeeded in placing wiretapping devices in two DNC phones. Unfortunately for them, their nefarious activity was discovered by a security guard who promptly called the police. Five men were arrested, and the government set to work covering up their illegal activity. In the worst case, they kidnapped Martha Mitchell, wife of John A. Mitchell. For a week, she was forcibly interred by an unknown number of Nixon goons. Martha attempted to escape several times, each time she was verbally and physically accosted to the point of needing stitches. Nixon's personal lawyer arrived at the hotel alongside a psychiatrist who injected Martha with a tranquilizer. Over the next few years, whistleblowers and reformers on the inside, as well as journalists who were committed to discovering the truth, worked to bring down a corrupt president. In the end, SCOTUS unanimously rejected Nixon's argument of executive privilege. On August 8, 1974, Nixon said, quote, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Unquote. Upon assuming office, President Ford pardoned Richard Nixon of all wrongdoing. Watergate started an avalanche of anti-government sentiment as congressmen of both parties took aspects of the nation's double dealings to investigative committees. These congressional hearings revealed much wrongdoing on the United States' part and contributed to the people's mistrust of all public institutions. In the corporate field, the 1970s was a transitional period for many industries. Many businesses embraced the new technological changes with open arms as a way to increase efficiency while also, quote-unquote, downsizing their workforce. Regardless of the business owners' feelings toward technological advancements, they all uniformly opposed meaningful worker reforms, especially when it came to health and safety. The most distressing and insidious example is that of Karen Silkwood. She was an incredibly intelligent person, graduating from Lamar University with a degree in science. Silkwood had found work at the Kerr-McGee plant in the small town of Crescent, Oklahoma, just outside Oklahoma City. She made $3.45 an hour, which was much higher than her co-workers. This particular Kerr-McGee plant manufactured plutonium pellets, which were then fastened into fuel rods. Philip Dre says, quote, Plutonium is a byproduct of neutron-bombarded uranium. The substance is highly radioactive. Silkwood's job was to perform quality control tests on the pellets as well as the finished rods to make sure the welds were perfect, unquote. In fall of 1972, she became embroiled in a strike, which had long been fermenting. The months-long work action politicized Silkwood, and she became an active union member. Silkwood was not the kind of person to be pushed around by anyone. She actively challenged her bosses, at one point shouting, quote, God damn it, I am right and you are wrong. If you want to tell me what to do, you ought to learn how to do the job right, unquote. In spite of her protests, work was ramped up, schedules were lengthened, and safety standards were laxed. 
Silkwood feared the farm boys who worked on the factory floor had very little clue what they were actually doing. Around 1974, Silkwood began experiencing bouts of depression. It was hard for her to sleep and even harder to stay awake. Doctors prescribed her a brand new muscle relaxant, the Quaalude. She quickly grew dependent on this now outlawed narcotic. In late summer, Silkwood was exposed or contaminated at work by plutonium. After a co-worker was also contaminated, she began openly questioning safety standards. Kermagee, meanwhile, were asking the National Labor Review Board to monitor an upcoming union election. They were hoping to defeat the union at the ballots. Silkwood knew it was crucial for the union to win and began openly taking notes on safety violations. The union's chances were rather low. Most of their members had departed during the strike. In a last-ditch effort, Silkwood and two colleagues departed for Washington, D.C., meeting the union president, Tony Mazzucci. Following the meeting, Silkwood spoke privately with Mazzucci. She said that she had evidence of workers passing along unsafe plutonium rods. If this were true, a nuclear meltdown could occur wherever those faulty rods were installed. On top of this, foremen, she claimed, were falsifying these records. Mozochi asked Silkwood to, quote, document everything in specific detail, unquote, and not to mention her subversive work to anyone. To help the union's election chances, Mazzucci dispatched several scientists who spoke to workers on the dangers of plutonium contamination. On October 16th, workers voted 80 to 61 to retain their union representation. As Karen proceeded with her undercover investigation, she experienced three separate episodes of plutonium contamination. Her health was rapidly deteriorating, and she was using quaaludes multiple times a day. The effects could be seen physically. Silkwood was now only 94 pounds. She also began growing suspicious that retaliation against her was imminent. She claimed she was being followed, that people wanted to hurt her, that someone had put plutonium in her home to poison her. Following a corporate investigation, high amounts of plutonium were discovered all over Silkwood's home. A bologna sandwich in the fridge was found to be especially contaminated. Following a fecal test, it was discovered Silkwood had ingested plutonium. I couldn't think of a more terrifying horror movie in my wildest dreams. It came to light she had confided in co-workers about her investigation. A short time later, her urine test was contaminated with plutonium. Her roommate was also contaminated. Kermagee claimed that for some reason, Silkwood brought the plutonium home with her. Through all this, Silkwood remained diligent in her work, and she claimed she had gathered enough information to prove Kermagee foremen were falsifying records. On November 17th, following their locals meeting, she was meant to present this evidence to union higher-ups who had just arrived in town. Karen Silkwood never arrived at the meeting. She was driving alone on Highway 74, heading south into the city, 
when her car veered off the road and crashed head-on with a culvert on the opposite shoulder of the highway. And she died instantly. Police spent little time on the investigation. They claimed Silkwood had fallen asleep at the wheel. This seemed unlikely to union higher-up Steve Wodka. Why would she fall asleep at the wheel when she was meant to unveil her company's wrongdoings after years of undercover work? Additionally, the supposed folder containing evidence of impropriety was never recovered from the crash site. The union brought in their own private investigator, who also was a former traffic cop. He said it was unlikely Silkwood fell asleep at the wheel, considering, in almost all cases, drivers asleep on the wheel veer right, not left as her car had done. He put forward his own theory. The car was rammed from behind, causing Silkwood to careen to her end. The tracks her car left, as well as the force with which she was gripping her steering wheel, both support this theory. Whatever truly happened, Karen Silkwood was dead, but not the spirit she inspired. It was discovered many of her claims were correct, although they were not as serious as Silkwood believed. Authorities and the company stuck to the story that she was a drugged-out, crazy, complaining woman. There was some vindication on the part of Silkwood's family. In a decades-long legal case, Kermagee settled out of court with Silkwood's father for over $1.3 million. In the labor movement, corruption had taken a unique form. La Cosa Nostra, or the Mafia, controlled many labor unions and their subsidiaries in major ways. La Cosa Nostra first arrived in America from Italian shores in the form of gangsters and hoodlums who would shake down their poor neighbors for money for protection. This all-Italian group was most powerful in New York City, where the five families held sway. They were the Bonanno, the Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucese families. During Prohibition, the Mafia was incredibly powerful due to their monopoly on the illegal alcohol trade. When this trade came to an end in the early 1930s, the Mafia needed new outlets for money-making. Conveniently for them, as union rights rose, so did union coffers. The mob zeroed in on unions as their new cash cow. This was a relatively easy process, as organized crime and organized labor had been uncomfortable bedfellows for decades. Throughout the early 1900s, both labor unions and businesses wanted mafia protection for their respective causes. Labor unions found, however, that once criminals were invited in, they stayed for good. In many cases, this trend was helped along by businesses who preferred dealing with mobbed-up unions as opposed to left-wing unions. In the former case, sweetheart deals were given to employers for the right price. This made it possible to use non-union labor on job sites, which incurred no wrath from unionists. 
The mob's first infiltration was of the docks in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and New Jersey. They controlled the fish markets and ports. In Chicago, Al Capone and the Outfit ran dozens of union locals which had huge influence in trucking and hotels. They moved into filmmaking, taking control of the Motion Picture Operators Union. They leveraged this union to make millions, and in return, they signed no-strike pledges with employers. These industries had a high turnover rate, irregular work, and often authoritarian bosses. This made them incredibly susceptible to mob influence. In Philadelphia, the mafia exerted untold influence over the roofers' union, while the Teamsters' pension fund was plundered by mafioso across the country. They used up to 70% of Teamster pension money to invest heavily in Las Vegas casinos. It's a sad but true statistic that virtually every single organized crime figure of the past six decades has also been heavily involved in the labor movement. They would gain lucrative posts through intimidation and charisma. This ensured virtual one-party rule in most mob-controlled unions. The price for dissent was exceedingly high. The ruthless use of the carrot-and-stick method extended beyond mob-controlled unions. In the United Mine Workers, John L. Lewis had retired. In his stead, Tony Boyle became president. He was an authoritarian and a bully, but had none of John Lewis's charisma. A small but vocal minority of dissidents challenged his rule. These dissidents were led by Jock Yablonski. Following a fraught election in which Boyle retained the union's presidency, Yablonski claimed voter fraud on a massive level. After his threat to have the election overturned, Yablonski, his wife, and his daughter were murdered in their home. It took years of investigation but authorities concluded that Boyle ordered the assassination, and he was convicted of first-degree murder. Following the passage of the Landrum-Griffin Act, George Meany took a decidedly hands-off approach when confronting labor racketeering in the AFL-CIO. When he retired in 1979, he was replaced by Lane Kirkland. As a Southerner, he was raised in Depression-era poverty, which must have been crippling. These experiences got him involved in advocacy. But when it came to combating labor racketeering, he did next to nothing. He argued that because of the Landrum-Griffin Act, labor had no responsibility to address corruption or mafia influence. To that end, he invited the Teamsters back to the AFL-CIO with open arms. The infiltration of the mafia into the labor movement helps explain union members' apathy. James B. Jacobs contends, quote, Less than 5% of eligible members turn out at regular union meetings. Less than 25% vote in union elections, unquote. Violence against union members explains the reluctance of rank-and-file to embrace reform. From the 1920s to 1980, 
more than 25 union members were murdered by the mafia or corrupt union entities. The most famous alleged murder was that of Jimmy Hoffa. In 1975, the former president of the Teamsters disappeared in a Detroit suburb. Theories and speculations about his assailant or assailants have fed Hollywood writers and conspiracy theorists for decades. His disappearance and presumed death re-energized the sputtering federal attack on labor racketeering. For the past several decades, the federal response to the mafia was lackluster. This changed due mostly to the death of J. Edgar Hoover. He had positioned his Federal Bureau of Investigation to be focused primarily on subversives and left-wing radicals. In new hands and better regulated by the federal government, the FBI began a concerted offensive against organized labor racketeering. They were imbued with a powerful tool, the RICO. RICO laws were the culmination of a trend that dated back from the 1940s of congressional attempts to curtail labor racketeering. If racketeers were found guilty of criminal RICO violations, they could face up to 25 years in federal prison. The civil side of RICO could also be used by victims to seek treble damages in civil court. For obvious reasons, many victims choose not to sue the mafia. For much of the 1970s, RICO was not used in many convictions. However, by the late 1970s, RICO became the norm for racketeering cases. In addition to RICO, the Witness Security Protection Act passed in 1970, and two years previous, Congress gave the authority to federal forces to use electronic eavesdropping. Another consequence of Hoffa's disappearance was a new initiative amongst reformists in the union movement to counter corruption. This was not done from the top, but rather from the bottom. Several anti-corruption groups funded on a shoestring budget have fought the good fight against corruption in their unions. The Association for Union Democracy and the Teamsters for a Democratic Union attempt to fight the mafia's influence every day and bring democracy back to the labor movement. At first, the organized crime and racketeering section and the FBI believed most mob money came from gambling. They were shocked at how wrong they were they quickly shifted their official focus to labor racketeering. In the late 1970s, they launched a massive investigation into allegations of corruption on New York's waterfront. Unirac was a massive undertaking and one of the first of its kind. The Longshoremen's Union was the main focus of this FBI sting operation. The operation uncovered a massive racketeering ring, which exerted its influence from the Atlantic to the Gulf coasts. Every day, tens of thousands of dollars switched hands and fed this underworld empire. This was all at the expense of regular union members. Unirac bagged over 100 racketeers and removed them from the Longshoremen's Union. The most high-profile arrest was that of Anthony Scotto, high-ranking union and mafia member. So tremendous was his influence that politicians like Mayor John Lindsay came to testify on the mobster's behalf. 
Unfortunately, the gains of UNIRAC were slim as there was no concerted effort to continue purging corruption. In 1981, a Senate subcommittee investigation stated, quote, Payoffs were a part of virtually every aspect of the commercial life of port. Payoffs ensured the award of work contracts and continued contracts already awarded. Organized crime exerted significant influence over the ILA and many shipping companies. Some companies learned how to prosper in the corrupt waterfront environment. The free enterprise system was thrown off balance. The low bid did not beat the competition. Profitability was not based on efficiency and hard work, but rather on bribery, extortion, and underworld connections. Unquote. It was clear more reform would be needed as organized crime entrenched itself further into organized labor. The government's efforts to stomp out corruption and racketeering in the labor movement is continuous. In many cases, however, the investigating senators are anti-labor in their sentiments. Those who truly wish to end corruption and mob influence in labor unions should be focusing on granting more union rights and more union democracy, not less. The double standard shown by corrupt businesses and politicians should not be missed either. In both cases, violence and manipulation are used to control the narrative. In all cases, the one most hurt is the worker. Sure, the massive conglomerate shipping company had to pay a lot of money for their goods to be serviced, but this is realistically a drop in the bucket when one considers the vast expenses a shipping company could incur. With this in mind, I think it's important not to forget the stories and the sentiments of the people who encompass the labor movement. Throughout the country, the advancements and setbacks of the labor movement had serious consequences on people's daily lives. As technology rapidly improved, many working people were left destitute through no fault of their own. Unions should have been in the forefront, supporting their workers in their transition to America's modern service economy. In a major way, however, I think it's fair to say unions dropped the ball. Unions could have been at the forefront, for example, of the anti-war movement, courting the youngest generations. Instead, they consistently sided with an inept government and their participation in an even more inept war. The fact that unionists rub shoulders with American legionaries and the paleo-conservative John Birch Society is disgraceful. Working people fuel this country's economy, and union members provide some of the most important and necessary work for this nation. It was working people who made the majority of contributions to Stud Turkel's book, Working. Rebecca Sweeney describes being fired repeatedly for rocking the boat. Eventually, she got on the staff of the United Electrical Workers of America. She found herself unceremoniously removed from this position because her co-workers believed she was a lesbian. She recalls her union brothers and sisters ostracizing her for her supposed identity. One male employee said, quote, It's one thing to fight for the working class, but it's another thing to take a fight on for lesbianism, unquote. Diane Wilson is a processing clerk in the Personnel Management and Service Department of the Office of Economic Opportunity. 
she wishes, quote, that there was a better system, unquote. She is mainly in charge of petitioning the governor for the funds necessary for people living in poverty. When these same people arrive at her office, she claims that, quote, they're not treated as human beings, unquote, by upper management. Wilson claims that oftentimes it has to do with race. Wilson was denied promotion after promotion. She was told, quote, she didn't deserve it, unquote. Her union, and specifically her grievance man, came to her and her co-workers' aid. When the women collectively filed a civil rights complaint against their bosses, the long-withheld promotions flowed freely. Another boss hated to see the women idle, even if they had completed their day's work. He would assign busy work for the women. Wilson decided to fight back in the pettiest way she could think. Quote, So what I did, I would type a paragraph and wait five or ten minutes. I made sure I made all the mistakes I could. I fixed it up real pretty. I wouldn't stay on the margins. I told him it made me nervous to have this typed by a certain time. But I'm ready for you to read the other sheet to me. Oh, I did it up beautifully. He got the dictionary out, and he looked up the words for me. He started on the next sheet. I did the same thing all over again. He proofread them all. Oh, he looked so serious. All this time spending just to keep me busy, see? Well, I didn't finish it by noon. I'm just going to see what he does if I don't finish it on time. Oh, it was imperative. So 12.30 comes, and the work just looks awful. I, I typed on all the lines. I continued it anywhere. One of the girls comes over. She says, you're going off the line. I said, oh, be quiet. I know what I'm doing. Just go away. I decided I'd write him a note. Dear Mr. Roberts, you've been so much help. You proofread, you look up words for your secretary. It must be marvelous working for you. I hope this has met with your approval. Please call on me again. I never heard from him. Unquote. She closes her thoughts by saying, quote, I don't see any need for work you don't enjoy. I like the way the Indians lived. They moved from season to season. They didn't pay taxes. Everybody had enough. I don't think a few should control everything. I don't think it's right that women lay down and bear sons. And then you have a few rich people that tell your sons they have to go and die for their country. They're not dying for their country. They're dying for the few to stay on top. I don't think that's necessary. I'm just tired of this kind of thing. I just think we ought to be just human, unquote. Gerald Ford would lose his presidency to Jimmy Carter. While Jimmy Carter is an amazing human, he was a poor president. His indecision saw his re-election chances ground into dust. Replacing him was the first union president to be president of America, Ronald Reagan. During his time as SAG's head, he was forced to deal with the corrupting influence of the mafia. When he took power as president, he set out countless task forces and inquiries into the state of organized crime in the labor movement. His initiatives against organized crime went a long way toward breaking the back of La Cosa Nostra's influence in the American labor movement. 
However, the rest of his presidency was marred by anti-union sentiments and active attempts to curtail labor rights. In the next episode of Turning Tides, Links in the Chain, America will be occupied, not by a foreign power, but by a new wave of neoliberalism which will threaten labor everywhere. Reagan's policies and assertiveness brought a new era to American politics, which continues to deeply impact the world today. His action, or lack thereof, led to the deaths of millions during the AIDS ap- His action, or lack thereof, led to the deaths of millions during the AIDS epidemic, while his foreign policy allowed for the deaths of thousands of Latines who were simply trying to gain some measure of freedom in their own countries. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. Thank you all again so much for listening. A little update on my personal life. Since our little break, my niece, baby Bella Vera Sarafa, has broken free. She came a full day after my brother's wedding. In spite of being almost three weeks early, she is happy, healthy, and has a crazy set of lungs. Additionally, the Turning Tides family is becoming official. I asked Melissa to be my wife, and for some very strange reason, she said yes. Without Melissa, this show would not exist. She inspires me every single day to be better. She's not just my life partner. She's my best friend, my writing cohort, and my muse. If you truly love this show, give her a big thank you. I know I'm incredibly grateful for her. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast, as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.